So, we're beginning a new series today, uh, What is a Great Church? And today is the first of a number of lessons on that overall theme with several topics from it. What is a great church? And uh, we're going to start beginning today with the first lesson, which is that the great church is God-focused. And today, to help us to understand what that looks like, what that means, we are going to be taking some lessons from the church, the ecclesia, the gathered, the called out ones in Antioch, in Syrian Antioch. Now, I should explain a bit more about where this great church idea comes from. Now, the Watford Church of Christ will be familiar with the fact that about four years ago, I introduced this idea to the church, which I borrowed, some might say stole, from the Thames Valley Churches of Christ. I rather like this idea because it stands for something, which I'll explain. So the G stands for God-focused. The R, which will be next le week's lesson, stands for relationship-based. The, uh, the E stands for enabling our children to become Christians. Enabling, as in we can't make them do it, much as we might sometimes like to, but we want to be the kind of church that enables our children to become Christians. The uh, A stands for always free, yet spiritual. Always free, but spiritual. This is jumping around. Find that slide. There it is. In other words, we have freedom of choice. God gives us freedom, but we use our freedom responsibly by making spiritual decisions with our choices. And then the T stands for toiling to build the church well. That's the G-R-E-A-T of being a great church. And the idea behind this is not that we are great as in trying to make ourselves look great, or by comparison, prove ourselves great compared to another church. That's not the point at all. We're not trying to be greater than any other church or great as in the greatest church that ever was. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about here is being a church that makes God look great. That's the point. Make God look great. Somebody once said that, what's the point of church? The point of church is to make God look good. God put us together to make him look good. Worthy of glory, worthy of praise, worthy, worthy of someone, God, to, being people that make people want to come and find out about God because something good is happening, something amazing is happening. This God thing must be a good thing. So we're here in many ways. You want to simplify what church is all about. Why did God create the church? At least in part, it's to make him look good, to make him look smart, which he is. But how is he going to demonstrate that to the world? How is the world going to know how awesome he is unless they can see something in his people? And so you could say that's what being a church is all about. So we want to be a great church. We want to make God look great. That's uh, the point. And so we're talking today, our first point about being God-focused, because it all begins with God, and it must all be centered on him, or else we're going to be off on some weird tangent. And um, why does this matter? Well, what we focus on makes all the difference to our lives, doesn't it? It makes all the difference, what we're focused on. And we need reminders to help us to be focused on helpful and healthy things. Uh, these are some of the objects I have in my study at home. I have an Irish harp there given to me by Irish friends from a sister congregation in Dublin who I, we, Penny and I, love and have visited many times. I have that on my bookcase and I see it every day and it reminds me of my friends in the church in Dublin and it reminds me to pray for them. I'm so grateful for them. Um, this, these masks were given to Penny and I after we made a visit to Indonesia. 
I was asked to go and do some Bible teaching in Indonesia. It's a, we brought that back and it's a reminder of that time in Indonesia and our friends Harlem and Banya and others there in the church there in a Muslim country preaching the gospel. Very inspiring what they're doing there. Uh, that's why that's on my bookshelf. Uh, and then uh, this samurai sword uh, was uh, given to me by the church in Tokyo. We have a congregation in Tokyo and I went to preach there and do some teaching and as a thank you they gave me this. It's this long. It's an enormous big thing. And it is quite dangerous, I have to say. I mean, if you hit something, somebody with that, they'd know. Uh, but anyway, that's on its stand in my, in my study there to remind me of my friends in Tokyo. And I appreciate having that. Um, on my piano, I have pictures of my parents on their wedding day and of my daughter and her husband uh, on their honeymoon just after their uh, wedding days to remind me of these people. These people are important to me. Even important people can sometimes slip from your memory. Right? And so these things help me to remember. Uh, on another shelf, I have another picture of my parents' wedding day with my grandparents in the picture and a picture of my mother and father with me here in Watford a few years ago when they came to visit and I took them around the Watford Museum and we had a wonderful day together and that picture was taken on, on that day. I'm grateful for these things that remind me of people that matter to me. People that matter to me and a history that matters to me. I have one other thing on my uh, wall there, which is a sort of little thing of knickknacks, which reminds me of a number of different things. Let me just perhaps take this out like this. So to explain, that's the first ever purse or wallet I ever had as a kid. When I had my pocket money, which in those days, and Bill will remember this, and Garth and this, and a few others, it was threepence. A threepenny bit. Was, that was my first pocket money, and so that went in that little purse there. Uh, that, that's the only thing I, I think I still own that was given to me by my grandparents on my mother's side. It was, what, it was Easter, and they gave me a naughty Easter cup, Easter egg a cup holder, and I still have that. Um, and these other sort of military vehicles are from when I was a little kid and I used to play war games when I was young, so you might have done things like that. And there are various other things that are important to me, remind me of certain parts of my life that are important. And they help me to stay focused on things that are good and things that are meaningful and things that are important. And so you, the thing about this is I can live my life without remembering things that are important. You and I can come to this building and sing some songs without necessarily remembering why we're here. We can do the activities of a church without being focused on God. What a tragedy that would be. Let me ask you this. And do your best to shout out with your mask on the best we can hear, right? But give me some ideas. Think back to Scripture, Old Testament perhaps particularly. What are some of the things that God did or God gave his people to help them be focused on him? What would you say? So things that help their focus, Leon? Binding scriptures. Binding scripture physically to their bodies, yeah. Sabbath day, all right? Every week, Sabbath day. The tabernacle in the desert, the temple in Jerusalem. A great reminder. Festival days, all through the year, every now and again, some festivals. Right, you've got the scriptures on the doorframe, yeah? Simon? The ark. The ark, very good. Being carried when they were journeying and then in the temple once it was settled, yeah. Anything else, Devin? They crossed the Jordan on dry land, they picked up stones and put them on the, uh, on the other side and built a, um, a mound of stones there to remind them. Yes, okay. Right, people like Abraham, they'd stop somewhere and God would appear, they'd say, right, okay, build an altar and so something like that, yeah. Bread and wine, okay. Bread and wine, new covenant, yes. Actually, when you start to think about it, 
as you go through Genesis or the Old Testament especially, a time and time and time again, God gives them something to help them to be focused on him. Sometimes those things became the thing they worshipped, of course, unfortunately. But the intention was to help them remember. And then we come to the New Covenant. George, thank you. You rounded it out nicely because what do we have in the New Testament? I mean, we don't have a temple, right? We don't have a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. We don't have altars in that sense of the Old Covenant. We, we don't have the festivals in exactly the way that Judaism has. We, we don't have hardly any of this. We have, I think, two things. Fundamentally, and we do have a Bible, and that's very important. In fact, I keep that. Is there one more slide? Okay, so I have my. I've tried to keep this on the right slide. I, I, I have as a habit. I have my Bible open on that book tree thing on my desk the whole time open because it reminds me. So we have the scriptures, but then we have one another. There's something about one another that helps us to be God-focused, and we have the Lord's Supper, which we'll talk more about in a minute. And I think that's what we have. And we have baptism. That's right, so that's... Circumcision. We have... You won't. We do have baptism. Well, that's a one-time event, but we have the... So what I'm thinking about is the, the like more regular reminders. So gathering reminders, and the Lord's Supper reminds us. These are some of the things that help us to stay god focused. So today I want to take some inspiration from the church in Antioch. I love the church in Antioch. It's, always, it's been an inspiration for me for many years. Um, just a slight digression. Um, this photograph was taken a long time ago. Uh, Danny will know some of the people in that picture, and a few of us will, if not most. But let me uh, demonstrate. So uh, Ian Tootle, now up in Edinburgh. Dwight Lawrence, West London. Myself, believe it or not. You know who that is, Dan? That's Sam Lee. Stewie Brown, Victor Odesanya, Andy Taylor, Ollie Dufresne, Walter Raja. Uh, that was the Manchester Church football team in the mid-90s. And when Penny and I were up there leading the church in Manchester, we had a football team in a local league, the, the Stockport and Cheshire League, I think it was. And we played every Saturday, and that was our football team. And we called our football team Mantioch, as a play on Antioch and Manchester. Right? We called ourselves Mantioch. The, uh, the play teams we played against called us the United Nations team. Because all the teams we played against were literally all white or all black. There were no mixed teams at all. Ours was the only one. So they, you know, we had a Malaysian in there. We had people from all kinds of backgrounds. I mean, uh, a lot of fun. Anyway, that's a bit of a digression. But I've been thinking, the Antioch church has been something that's been in my mind a lot over the years. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from them. So today we're going to do, I'm going to skim through the story of Antioch, and hope that it will help us to be uh, inspired to uh, take these lessons. Uh, that's where we're talking about, by the way. So you've got two Antiochs in the Bible. You've got, uh, you've got Pisidian Antioch, which is not the one we're talking about, based over there. This is Syrian Antioch, north of Jerusalem, uh, which we'll look at in just a moment. So that's where we are geographically. And indeed, even today, this is a 13th century facade of a church building in Antioch, uh, built over the entrance to a cave that it is believed was used by Christians for worship in the first century. So there's a reasonable reason to believe that that's where the people we're going to be looking at today worshipped. They worshipped in a cave, not in a nice warm place with comfortable seats like this. They worshipped in a cave, my friends. So, all right, Acts 11. Let's go back there to the bit that Jordan read for us so well. And, okay, those are the passages we're going to be looking at today. So in Acts chapter 11, 
People have been scattered by persecution, connected with Stephen. You remember Stephen the martyr was killed in Acts chapter 7. And then all except the apostles are scattered. And some of them went to Antioch, spreading the word. And they get to Antioch and they speak to, of all people, Greeks. My goodness, what were they thinking? They speak to Greeks. And of course, Greeks is a code word for Gentile in that context. So this is non-Jews is what they're talking about. So up until this time, the only people that have heard about Jesus directly from other people who follow Jesus is Jewish people. This is the very first time that groups of people who are not Jewish have been uh, given the opportunity to know about Jesus. Individuals have before this, but this is the first time, if you like, a, a population has had the chance. And so they do that, and the Lord's with them. A great number of people believe and turn to the Lord, and Jer Jerusalem hears about it, and they say, what on earth are those Antioch people doing? They are crazy, talking to Greeks. Uh, let's go and see what's going on. They send Barnabas, and he arrives, and he sees that it is God's work. It's God's work. The grace of God. It's seen, he saw what the grace of God had done, verse 23. He was glad. Encourage them. Remain true to the Lord with all your heart. A good man he was, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and the work continues. A great number of people were brought to the Lord. And after this, Barnabas realizes that the work is too great, and so he goes off to Tarsus to get this chap Saul, a troublemaker, but then if you're going to speak to Greeks, you might as well have all the trouble in one place. So he brings Saul over as well and says, oh, why don't you join me? And they are there and they teach great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So another first. The first first is that it's Greeks. The second first is that the name Christian comes up for the very first time. Not used before this. And they are described as little Christ, effectively. And then there's a prophecy. Agabus stands up and says there's going to be a severe famine. And so the people in Antioch say, that's going to be difficult for our brothers and sisters in Judea. So they gather some money together and send it off to the uh, people in Jerusalem, uh, to the elders there by Barnabas and Saul, who take it down there. So briefly about this, what do we have? We have a church characterized by missional initiative. Missional initiative. They take the mission to whoever needs it. They take initiative. They do something which has never been done before. They don't need a precedent. They are willing to do anything to try something new if that is going to glorify God and if people are going to be saved. They take initiative and they don't have recognized leaders to, to take that initiative. There's no apostles have come up from Jerusalem when they start this work. There's no recognized leaders. We don't even know the names of any of these people that go to Antioch. I find that fascinating. I'd, I'd like to know the names. Who was it that just decided, I'm fed up of talking to just Jewish people. I'm going to talk to some Greeks. Who'd made that decision? How did it go? What happened to the other Jewish Christians around them when they saw their Jewish fellow Christian talking to Greeks? I mean, how did that all work out? I'd really like to know, but we're not told. But they take missional initiative without precedent, uh, without, um, without any recognized leaders guiding them with that. I think it's amazing. Great numbers are brought to the Lord. Uh, God's grace is recognized as being the reason this happens. You see why I think this is so important about a good illustration of what it means to be God-focused. It's by God's grace that this is done. It is recognizably God's power at work. And they, have a, they acquire a new name, the new name of Christian, and they're very generous. They give as, as best they can to help out some poorer Christians uh, as they will have need. And you notice that the word Lord is used a lot in this passage. The Lord Jesus, verse 20. Verse 21, the Lord's hand. They turned to the Lord. It's the grace of God that's um, involved. It's, it's wonderful uh, what God is doing here.
There's a God focus which leads to wonderful things. But something I take from this is that, well, God uses ordinary people. These weren't special people. They were just scattered to Antioch. They just ended up there. They probably went to Antioch because it was a major commercial city. It was, the, at that time, I think the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Alexandria, Rome, and then Antioch. So it was a city of maybe 300,000, 400,000, possibly even 500,000 people. Enormous for the first century. Maybe they went there for a job. They'd got, they'd got ejected from Jerusalem. They'd lost their work, their, their uh, source of income. They were ordinary people, like you and me. But God used them in an extraordinary way because they were God-focused. What could God do with us if we stopped worrying about whether we're adequate and started having confidence in the adequacy of God? What could happen? What would happen if we weren't afraid of our limitations and instead inspired by God's awesome power? You say, well, I'm too sinful. I don't know. Plenty of people in the Bible were pretty sinful, but God still used them. It's not about your purity exactly. I mean, certainly our behavior matters. But it's not about being perfect. It's not about being sinless. It's not about being somebody with a, a great track record of righteousness. It's about God. Every church has got sin in it because it's got people in it. God's, the only churches God has ever used are sinful churches or people with sin in those churches or just people, actually, in churches. And they say, well, I'm too old. Well, I'm too young. We don't know the age of these people. It doesn't tell us. It's immaterial, clearly. God uses ordinary people, and God resources his people. You notice that Barnabas comes, and he's a great help. He sticks around, and then he gets Paul, gets Saul, who becomes Paul. God resources those who take initiative, I think. There's something about that. Acts 13, let's skip on to Acts 13. Just to say briefly about this passage, that we see, again, more evidence of the heart attitude of these people. Acts 13, verse 1. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, he's still there, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, again, he's still there. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So, after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. What do we see here? Firstly, we see a very diverse group. We see a bit of United Nations here. Different backgrounds. Uh, Saul was very highly educated. Menaean, if you were brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, probably comes from a privileged background. Barnabas, we don't know a great deal about, but he was a property owner at some point. Simeon called Niger. Well, presumably he either had particularly dark skin or perhaps he was African. We, we can't be sure, but quite possibly he was African. Um, Lucius of Cyrene from another place, not from Antioch. So we've got a mixture of people here. And they form a mixed group of leaders in that church, prophets, teachers, and perhaps they had other roles as well. And they have a posture of listening. That was, how do you hear from God unless you're listening? They must be listening. And how, what helps them to listen? They have a habit and a culture of worship. 
Do you notice? It's not they thought, let's go and plant a church, now let's pray about it. They were praying. They were worshipping and fasting. That could be singing, it could be uh, praying, it could be um, some Bible study, actually. It could be a number of different things they're doing in terms of worship. Worship and fasting. And then the Holy Spirit gives them direction. I've got two people I need, and I've got some work for them to do. And so they say, okay, I don't argue. They give away, you could say, they give away their best people. How generous they are. Barnabas and Saul, who taught great numbers of people over quite an extended period, very embedded in that congregation, very valuable gifts. Lots of people be very grateful to them for the teaching they have done, and they say, no, 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 it's okay, we can send them away. And they sent off Barnabas and Saul, and they went off on the first organized missionary journey. There were other efforts before that, but this is the first time a church has sent off some people. Again, initiative, no precedent. They just get on with it, because the Holy Spirit has, uh, has called them to. So they're generous, they're obedient, they again take initiative. I think they're a remarkable group. I love the Spirit. What do we take from this? Perhaps we could take the idea that from the very gifted, much is expected. They are a very gifted church. God takes, takes them and uses them in other ways. I believe this is a congregation in which we have a great number of marvelous gifts, skills, experience, talents, of to whom much is given, much is expected. Let's not limit ourselves. Let us let God see what he can do and use our gifts. How are we going to affect the counties around us? Bedfordshire, Hertfordshire, Bucks, and others. What could God help us to do? Some of us live in those counties. We come here for Sunday, but, but we, we live elsewhere. What could God do with you personally, supported by this congregation, by the power of the Spirit, where you live? Whether it's, whether it's good old Croxley Green for me and Penn, or whether it's Watford for some of us, or whether it's Aylesbury, what could God do in Aylesbury? What could God do in Milton Keynes? What can God do in Hatfield? What can God do in Bushy and in Leesden and in all the places where we live? God is not limited by our lack of resources. We may feel we're only one or two people, but we are more than that with God. What can God do? And maybe there's a place here for us to contemplate how could we be a congregational, a congregation that is characterized by worship, by prayer and fasting, and a listening posture such that God will direct us. Whether God operates exactly the same way today as he did in the first century is something we could discuss. But nonetheless, if we place ourselves in a position of submission and of listening, won't we find God guiding us? Whether it is through a specific word of the Holy Spirit or whether it is more through his organizing and revealing of circumstances and opportunities. God's capable of communicating. If we decide, we will do the listening. And that then, towards the end of chapter 14, let's nip over there for a moment. And we'll finish in chapter 15. But at the end of chapter 14, another reference to the church in Antioch. And in verse 26, this is uh, Barnabas and Saul who've been sent out and done a lot of work and they're coming back. They sail back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and presumably in that cave maybe and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. I love the, uh, I love the fact that God is the focus still here. Right? They could come back and say, um, oh, we planted these many churches, we've got this many membership, we've got, uh, maybe they knew that, I don't know. But what did they come back? 
It says they reported all that God had done, all that God had done, not all that Saul had done, not all that Barnabas had done. They had done a lot. Read those earlier chapters. They'd been busy. They'd been working hard. They'd, they'd suffered persecution and all kinds of problems, but they came back to report what God had done through them, how he'd opened a door of faith for the, to the Gentiles. They stayed there a long time. It's all about God. What will God do here? What is God doing here? What could God do here? Not what you, could you do and I do so much. Yeah, God will use us, but what are we praying about? When we pray about our situation here in this building at the moment, what do we pray for? Do we pray that God will do things? What God had done. And lastly, in Acts 15, and we don't have time to do this justice because it's the whole chapter, really, but I'll just point out a couple of things. Something else about the church in Antioch that helps me to believe they truly were God-focused. So in Acts 15, at the beginning of the chapter, we find that controversy comes to the church in Antioch. Some people go there and say, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. So Paul and Barnabas say, that's rubbish. Of course you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. And there's a big debate. So Paul and Barnabas are sent down to Jerusalem to sort out, actually, is this real, really true? Do we have to be circumcised to be saved or not? So they go down to Jerusalem and uh, telling other people along the way what's going on. And they meet with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. And there's a lot of discussion. Peter gets up and gives a speech. And Paul and Barnabas share about what God has been doing amongst the Gentiles. And then a decision is made where they decide, no, they're not going to require the Gentiles to be circumcised. And the Gentiles, I'm sure, said a hearty amen. <laughs> so then they write a letter and they send that back with the apostles and elders to Antioch, along with Paul and Barnabas and some other people. And they send it back and they say, you guys are awesome in Antioch. We love you. Uh, you Gentiles, you don't need to be circumcised. There are a few things you do need to do, but that you don't need to do. And they go off and deliver the letter to Antioch in verse 30. They gather the church together, perhaps in that cave again. It's time for a cave meeting. And they deliver the letter. And the people read it, or they heard it read, I'd imagine. And they were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas who'd come up from Jerusalem. Prophets said a lot to encourage and strengthen them. They spent some time, they were sent off. Paul and Barnabas stayed there, where they, in verse 35, and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. So, what do we have here? We have a conflict. Antioch becomes a place of controversy, not of their own choosing. But when this conflict arrives, rather than entering into a battle, they decide to be curious. And I believe curiosity is a sign of being God-focused. Because God's always messing with our ideas. He's always showing us there's something we haven't yet fully understood about him. And so he confuses us from time to time. And they were confused by the situation. But they remained curious, they remained humble, and they went, they sent these people to Jerusalem with a learning spirit. Let's, we'll share with you what we see God having done. We'd like to know what you think. They didn't go down there to say, you know, you can't make us do that. I mean, that's not the spirit. They had a spirit of a peacemaking spirit, right? Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. That's a godly spirit. A God-focused church will have a learning spirit, a humble spirit, a curious spirit, not an argumentative spirit. And in the end, many are taught, many are strengthened, many are encouraged, many come to the Lord. How does this apply to us? Well, I would say, if we're going to be a God-focused church, it is inevitable that controversy will come our way. Whether we like it, or not. Controversy from other Christians, controversy from people who aren't Christians, 
People won't agree with what we believe and teach from time to time. Sometimes they may have a point we need to listen to. Right? Not all opposition is, is uh, unhelpful. But being a place that may occasion controversy is not something you and I can choose to have or not have. At certain times, there will be controversy if we're a God-focused church, because we won't be doing things the way the world would want us to do them if we are a God-focused church. It will come our way. So as what's our response to this? To be teachable, to be humble, and to let God reveal what is right and what is not right. And in doing these things, I believe, it will be a demonstration that we are willing to be God-focused. So let's summarize and think a bit about what this might mean, and then we'll uh, finish with the Lord's Supper, as George mentioned. I think it's really important that we reaffirm in our own hearts that our focus in being a body of Christ is not so that we have some friends. I don't know about you, but I, I can be quite a lonely person, and I like the church because I've got lots of nice friends here. I mean, I really like that. But we don't come here because we want or need friends. That's not our focus. We don't come here because it's a safe place for our children and we hope they'll learn some good morals. That's not why we come. It's not why we're, not what we're focused on. We're not focused, essentially, on what brings us pleasure and satisfies us. When we're God-focused, we're looking to what satisfies him and trust that he will satisfy us adequately, which he promises he will. I think looking at the church in Antioch, it shows me that a God-focused church is a church that takes missional initiative. Now, what might God be calling us to in the different places where we live? Well, let me ask the more pertinent question, what might God be calling you to where you live, in your street, in your town, in your village? What might he be able to do in these places where God has put us? And a God-focused church like Antioch will be a church characterized by prayer and fasting and worship and listening, and then God directs. A God-focused church will be generous in helping other Christians, like they did in Acts chapter 11. So what would your life look like if you could be more God-focused than you are right now? What difference would it make? What would your, what would your, what would this congregation look like? If we grew in our God focus, what difference would it make? What change would it bring about? And what difference would it make in this dark world of ours? If we as a congregation were more God focused, what difference could it make to the people around us? Whether it's right here on this estate or right around the corner from where you live. I believe the key thing that God gave us to help be God focused as a congregation and there are many things we can do personally, but as a congregation, it seems to me that the Lord's Supper is the key. That's the key to helping us stay God-focused as a congregation. We come together every week as a body, as a spiritual family, to feast together. To feast together on Jesus. To feast together and focus together on what brings us together. It is the cross. So we're going to take bread and wine in just a moment. And as we do that, we're being reminded of what our lives are really all about. They're really all about Him. They're really all about pleasing Him. All about responding out of gratitude for what He's done.